This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right by Brendan O'Connor, now available in paperback. In Blood Red Lines, journalist Brendan O'Connor investigates the recent history and politics of U.S. nativism, from the dark money-funded think tanks to the militant reactionaries battling anti-fascists in the streets. As O'Connor argues, a new ideology is emerging, border fascism, one that any movement for working-class liberation will need to reckon with in the struggles to come. Greg Grandin says of the book, Blood Red Lines connects the dots providing a vivid account of the rise of a unique kind of U.S. fascism, born on the border, but now nationalized. O'Connor simultaneously produces empathy and outrage in the exact proportions we need to fight back. Indispensable. Find Blood Red Lines at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of The Dig Presents. Maybe you heard this summer that a former Air Force intelligence officer said at a congressional hearing that, basically, the government has been collecting alien bodies. He described it as biological material that was, quote, non-human. Well, we don't know much about that whole situation, but... This week, we do have a story about UFOs, and also the U.S. military-industrial complex, photography, and the geography of the desert. One thing I do need to say first, though, is that I do the dig as my full-time job, and I pay a bunch of other people to help put this out every week, including these very cool but rather expensive episodes of The Dig Presents. This is a listener-supported operation, and the place where listeners support us is at patreon.com slash the dig. If you're listening now, if you are a regular listener and can afford to contribute, please do so. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We have coffee mugs, tote bags, books to send contributors of at least $10 a month or annual equivalent of that. Oh, And please do share your favorite episode of The Dig Presents with a friend who is not yet a Dig listener. One idea behind this side project was to find listeners who might not be immediately attracted to a deeply complex two-and-a-half-hour interview, i.e. a regular Dig episode. I'm sure you know someone who fits the bill. Okay, starting the story now. Here's Stephen Cassidy-Jones and Liza Yeager. Okay, so can you just tell me about the road trip that we went on last summer. Uh, So we're we're driving on 15 North right now, coming up to the Cajon Pass. Yeah, so last August, we drove from my parents' place in Los Angeles up the 15 into the Mojave Desert. Yeah, so we're on this big pretty industrial highway there are one two three four five lanes but we're surrounded by mountains or foothills in every direction it's like chaparral like really squat scrubby plants that's what chaparral means yeah chaparral is the are the little bushes that you see 
To me, it looks crazy. It looks like already we're in alien territory. Wow, onion track. <laughs> White onions. So, what's your question today? Like, what are you trying to learn? Well, the question is, what's the deal with alien jerky? Being in the Mojave in the past, at least I have this memory that I saw sort of janky signs, handmade, that said, alien jerky sold here. What did the sign say? <laughs> alien jerky sold here. It was like, I guess part of my common sense understanding of the desert. I was like, oh, desert, uh, alien culture. Like, okay. But then you started thinking harder about it? Yeah. Like, what is alien jerky? Literally. And then also, how did this come to be a place that is associated with UFOs? UFO repair. It said UFO repair. Great. That's actually a really crazy one because it looked like a completely normal gas station and it was like gas, restrooms, all in this like really normal font and it said UFO repair in just exactly the same font. <laughs> As we were driving around, we saw gradually more and more like military land use. We're near Yarmo outside of Fort Irwin. There are just tons of like surplus and wrecked Humvees. There's like oh hundreds of them all in a junkyard lined up behind a dinky little uh, chain link fence. <laughs> Knowing a little bit about like the political economy of the desert out there, I already knew that it was like dominated by the military and defense contractors. And here's a sign that says the U.S. Marine Corps logistics base. Alien, the alien, alien. Gateway to Area 51, alien jerky. Did, Did it say alien? alien jerky? Yes. Oh fuck, I missed it. So going out on our drive, I was wondering what's the connection between the military's presence and this whole UFO culture? Oh my god, look, there's another weird tanks. It's just to commemorate the logistics space, I guess. And then what happens? Um, so we keep driving on I-15, headed to Baker. Great, here we go, Baker Boulevard. One of the only towns between Barstow and Las Vegas. The alien jerky store is right here. So we rolled into Baker. Right there. That's oh. a little, little cartoon alien head. It's a pretty small town, and we pulled up to the fresh alien jerky store. And the whole store is like designed to look like a battle tank. It has like armor, it has like various types of guns sticking out from the side of it. And then out front of the building is this like car. I guess I could just describe what I'm seeing here. So this is the uh, Galaxy Peace Patrol car. And it, it's full of people. It has four people in it, and they're armed to the teeth. People. Aliens, excuse me. Human, <laughs> humanoid aliens. And on the side of their car is uh, one, two, three, four, five, six rockets. So they're really ready for battle. They're waging peace uh, interplanetarily. 
And what's the vibe like inside the store? Can you describe the vibe? It's so busy. It's like full of people. Yeah, inside the store, it was pretty crazy. It was like <laughs> Disneyfied gift shop. They were blasting country music in there. And there was a lot of people in there. Okay, here's the alien jerky. It has a, a cowboy, an alien cowboy on it. And it says, abducted cow beef jerky. So it's beef. Okay. Oh, but it's like supposedly abducted by aliens. Uh-huh, okay, okay. So the alien fresh jerky means that it's jerky sold by aliens. <laughs> it's an alien product. An alien made it. It's an alien small business. <laughs> Texas style barbecue on the moon. The idea is not that we're eating an alien. I guess not, which is kind of a letdown. It's a huge Because that's what I thought it was supposed to be. I guess it's like alien is the possessive. Like it is alien, an alien's jerky. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys ever had alien jerky before? Yeah. Yeah? I'm <laughs> kind of let down that it's actually beef yeah. jerky. <laughs> yeah. I hope it's not alien jerky. Right? <laughs> We've had it a couple of times. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty good though. It is. Yeah, yeah it's okay. Really, yeah. yeah. Have you guys ever had any UFO encounter or anything like that? But no. we do believe though. Yeah. Oh, you believe? Okay. I do. Yeah, I yeah. definitely know something's out there for sure. We're kind of waiting for our encounter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were in Utah last week, and um, yeah, we were just always... looking out in the dark, and yeah, we're just like waiting in the <laughs> mountains. No, it's so clear out yeah. here. You know what I mean? It's just like man. Yeah, we're believers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks for talking to us. No problem, man. Thank you, guys. Have you ever had it before? Oh, my God, yes. Usually when I go to Vegas, we always either when we're on our way over there or coming back, yeah. we stop by here because it's always just, like, so delicious. This is our second time here. In yeah, two days. <laughs> yeah, two oh, yeah. days, yeah. You, are you alien believers? Like, do you believe yeah, in aliens? Yeah, of course. I've talked to a lot of people, and they've been like, yeah, I've seen this, I've seen that. I'm not saying like, oh my God, we've been just, they're everywhere. No, it's just here and there. What was it, a couple of weeks ago? We were outside, because we like to just stand outside and just watch, look in the sky like most people. And there was like this really weird light going across. And we we're just like, what the hell is that? Oh it God. was, yeah, and it was just like the way, at first we were always like, maybe it's a plane. But the way it was shaped was a little different. And the ways it, would go, it was going across, it wasn't like slow enough to be a plane. It was fast enough to be like, that shit's really high up and it's just like going across. And then I've seen them over like freeways when I'm driving. You'll just see a light, like you can tell it's the bottom of it and it's just going right by. I'm also not the type of person to be like, no, that's what it is. Just like religion, you don't force it. It is what it is. If you believe it, it, it it's, it's true. If it's not, then fine, on to the next. Let's not try to force people to see something they don't want to see, in all honesty. So, yeah. You're welcome. Thank you guys for asking questions. <laughs> I've never seen, I, I have not seen alien jerky. I, I would eat it if I saw it, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> um, can you tell me who Mark Pilkington is? So Mark Pilkington is a writer and a researcher. He published a book called Mirage Men, which is about how the U.S. military infiltrated the UFO community. And he also wrote a documentary about the same topic. When we were filming, some of the locals said they would just 
at night on a nice night put their lawn chairs out and just watch the sky over the base because crazy stuff would always be going on you'd have a light show whenever they were testing new tech and described all sorts of crazy things like all the things that ufos do mark told us that most of and possibly all of the ufo sightings that we are familiar with are like experimental military things and and that's kind of what you thought yeah like okay probably when people in the desert are seeing aliens what they're really seeing is like weird mysterious military shit that we're not allowed to know about yeah and mark confirmed that i just wanted to like clarify so you're like aliens are not real none of this is real period yeah aliens might be real but if you're looking for evidence of their engagement with us as humans or as with our planet you're not going to find it by looking at the ufo story why did you want to talk to mark how did you find him why do you want to talk to him i don't know it's like i was just reading wikipedia articles and i saw this weird story about how this air force special intelligence officer was supposedly feeding information about ufos to this aerospace engineer and then i was like what his his book was footnoted for that so can you just summarize that story yeah so there was this guy named paul benowitz and he was an engineer who had some contracts with uh defense aerospace companies Um, and he lived in Albuquerque across the street from the Kirtland Air Force Base and in the 1980s he started seeing some really weird things at the base. You know things doing 180 degree turns on a dime and doing like weird stepped flight paths where they kind of jiggle around and step up and step down that he believed, based on his experience in aeronautics, were impossible and possibly out of this world. And so he started taking photographs and videos and even other measurements, and he ended up contacting the Air Force saying, there's something really weird going on at this base, and I think that it might have something to do with aliens. And so at first, you know, the impulse, I imagine, would be to go and shut him down and be like, we have to stop him from surveilling the base. But instead of doing that, they actually encouraged him. They sent this guy, his name was Richard Doty. He was an agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. He was tasked with basically encouraging this um, engineer Paul Benowitz in his delusions about extraterrestrial visitations around New Mexico. He basically said, you know, thank you so much, Mr. Benowitz, for finding all this stuff. Like, please continue your investigation because it's really incredible that there may be alien activity at the Air Force Base. Like, we have to figure this out. Okay, so just to be clear, there's two people 
the engineer, which is Paul Benowitz, and this special agent who works for the Air Force, who's Richard Doty. That's right. And then he, Richard Doty took this guy up into uh, the mountains where the Air Force had staged a fucking alien crash landing site and flew them over the crash landing site. And they would be like, oh my God, Mr. Benowitz, look down there. What is that? Oh, wow. That must be an alien crash landing site. Paul Benowitz and Richard Doty would go out camping in these mountains and they would be witnessing the like crazy experimental Air Force equipment. And you know, as in all good disinformation campaigns, you sort of put stuff out there and then you want to hear the response, see how the information that you are putting out into the world is received and then you modify that information based on what you're receiving. They were asking ufologists what people in the UFO world were interested in, and then they were developing material that was basically targeted to exactly what people in the UFO community wanted. And Doty even said himself, like, it was almost too crazy for me to believe. If the Air Force hadn't told me that it was real, I would have thought that it was aliens too. And why? Why did they do that? Why did the Air Force want this guy to believe in aliens? I think the strategy behind this is really to muddy the waters. So on the one hand, they discredit people like Paul Benowitz, who are taking relatively systematic observations of probably experimental projects that the Air Force have and making him seem like a a nut, you know? And on the other hand, they're putting the idea out into the public that aliens might be real so when people see crazy unexplainable and unidentified objects in the sky their first thought is it may be an alien not this might be a new secret military technology and talking to mark he told us that there was really a pattern of the military doing this at different points at different times there are different reasons for promoting the story public relations, reputation, management, damage control, you know, and espionage and intelligence and counterintelligence. You know, I always say there's not like a, a single room in the Pentagon, as far as we know, where people are planning this year's UFO sightings campaign. Um, but there might be, but we don't know. It's one. But um, controlling the narrative is really important. Any information that's kind of not controlled is is potentially dangerous and can be turned against you so you control the narrative man who is he where is he why is he here one of the earliest attempts that the military had to promote this idea that aliens are real was a documentary that they produced and uh, distributed in the 70s no one wanted to join the army after Vietnam. So they were like, oh, we have to find exciting ideas to draw people into the uh, military. And they basically said, well, we can talk about lasers. We can talk about holograms. These are some of the cool things that we're working on that might interest people. Or we can talk about UFOs, you know. Located in a remote portion of a galaxy, somewhere, somewhere in infinite space. 
why is he here? They, they went for UFOs and and then made it what became a really quite successful and popular documentary called UFOs Past, Present and Future. Which was all about, you know, the things that we're familiar with now as like classic UFO conspiracy topics. Flying saucers, cattle mutilations, alien abductions. On a distant planet similar to his own, somewhere on the other side of our galaxy, other intelligent beings wondered too, and set out in airships on an adventure through space to search for their answers. Mark talked about the fact that once the military put this out there, they couldn't control it. There were concerns that the Soviets were probing the UFO community and placing agents into the UFO community. Because the people in the UFO community were seeing things? Yeah, because they're always hanging around air bases looking for UFOs. That's so interesting. It's like such a loop. Like the idea that that the military is perpetuating alien myths, but that creates sort of this engaged public that's like watching what they're doing and then perhaps passing on that information. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the problem. I mean, the whole point is really they created this monster and now they now they have to work work alongside it and work with it. It's a very much a kind of you know, Frankenstein's monster situation. You started this thing, there's no way you can switch it up. And I think the most recent surge of stories is very much, it's just a PR campaign to control the narrative around errors in pilot communications, pilot training, rather than say, yeah, our pilots freaked out, they saw a seagull and thought it was a flying saucer. You control the narrative and just say, well, these are our most highly trained pilots. We need to find out what that was. And also they're trying out new technologies. And of course, a lot of the personnel involved have no reason to know what's going on. So they're being exposed to and tested essentially to see how they respond. You don't want to give information away to the enemy, which is essentially what the pilots are doing when they're leaking descriptions of things that they're seeing or experiencing. You don't want the Russians or the Chinese or anyone, whoever it might be, to know what new toys you've got. So better to mask the whole thing as a mystery than you know, reveal any details. Okay, and can you tell me what happened in the end with the engineer and the, the secret agent guy? Richard Doty. Yeah, so Paul Benowitz really kind of lost it. He ended up being hospitalized for various psychiatric crises that he was having, and he kind of lost everything. He lost his livelihood, he was totally discredited, and Richard Doty, it's fascinating what happened with him because after he retired he became a fixture in the UFO conference circuit and he readily admitted to everything that he had done but there was also a big twist because he then turned around and professed to be a believer he was like, yes, I was, you know, tasked by the Air Force to spread all this disinformation, but 
I think they're actually really out there. And I think the Air Force is hiding something that is true. Dun, dun, dun. People have really very, very weird experiences. People have life-changing experiences. You know, they have to decide how to interpret and make sense of those experiences. And they might decide it's aliens, they might decide it's angels, they might decide it's demons, they might decide it's time travelers, whatever it is. What I'm saying is I believe people have these totally life-changing encounters with things that appear to be not human. The UFO story is a kind of weaponization of imagination and folklore and anomalous experience, I suppose, an attempt to kind of manipulate those themes and experiences into something that can be exploited for different purposes usually either money, power, or control. Um, Did talking to Mark help you understand what it might feel like to be the type of person that's really into aliens? Like a lot of the people that we met in the store? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm really into aliens. Why are you really into aliens? There's like the thrill of the unknown and the thrill of the unknowable. There's something really thrilling and scary. It's like a spiritual feeling that I'm like standing at the edge of my understanding, looking out into an unknown. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode, like every episode of The Dig, is made possible thanks to our listeners who support us at patreon.com and produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just a place for online commentary, but long-form, serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly and runs at around 160 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to survive. Dig listeners can join more than 70,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive. Their new issue on the Iraq War 20 years later is out now and packed with fantastic writing. I highly recommend that you check it out. First time subscribers only. You can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. So you don't believe in aliens? Oh yeah, I do. Oh, totally. Do. Totally. Totally. I've seen stuff. Oh, for sure. Like what? Oh, I, I mean, I'm 100%. 100%. One that really stands out is I saw like an oval kind of object middle of the day. Seriously. It was, I mean, we were on our way to uh, go skiing in Bryanhead. Everyone in the car saw it, okay? It was 
relatively close. It was just kind of skimming, like kind of on the top of the. There's like a mountains off to the side. We would just watch it. Just it just it was fast. I mean, you've seen those new uh, things that with the web the telescope and stuff, where there's like hundreds of millions of galaxies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it would it would be unlikely that there isn't. Now I'm sure there's all forms. There's probably life forms that are prim- more primitive than us by millions of years. There's probably advanced millions ahead of us. So totally, I'm hundred percent. I, that's only one. I, I probably had about five, what? five different. Well, that one, I, that, 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 I just saw that recently, but that, that could be something of our military. I mean, uh, no, seriously, we were looking up and then it was like a dark wing. Just, it was silent. It was, it made no noise, no lights. I could barely see it from like the background. It was dark outside, partially dark, but this was darker. Just, the wing just silent just just went right over us so it was like a wing like a giant just wing a giant wing now that you know i i'm pretty pragmatic and logical i i know it could be military or whatever but the one i saw in the middle of the daylight i know for certain because there was no wing it was just from my vantage point it looked like an oval and it was metallic and it was traveling lower altitude and it was going fast I mean fast. I'm talking covered a whole horizon in about, you know, less than 10 seconds. So I, I, I'm thinking 20,000 miles per hour, easy, easy, yeah. Now you could say that it could be something that we have that they're just not telling us, right? But I'm a sky watcher. I have telescopes. There's multiple things. Telling you, I could go on all day long with this <laughs> stuff. <Wow. laughs> Thanks for talking. Yeah, Thank no problem. So yeah, no doubt. Nice to meet uh, you. All right. Okay. If you look, you'll see. Most people don't look. Yeah, sure. yeah. Sure. I'm telling you, hundred <laughs> percent. Hello. Hi, Valerie. <laughs> Can you see me? No, just... we can't see see you. But we can hear you. Okay. Who is Valerie Kuletz and why did you want to talk to her? So Valerie is an environmental sociologist who wrote a book called The Tainted Desert about nuclearism in the Southwest Desert. Hi. Nice to meet you. And she is from there. So she has her own personal experiences to draw on. I mean, the place that I grew up in China Lake was conceived as a premier science city. And I'm not kidding. The science is all dedicated to weapons of destruction, weapons of mass destruction. But they were science cities nonetheless. She grew up on the China Lake base because her dad was a rocket scientist of some sort. He had a confidential job. That installation began with the Manhattan Project, which was not known. We didn't even know it. People who grew up there didn't know it uh, until until only fairly recently that that's what they had done. It's hard to explain how desolate that place actually was in the early days. I mean, the military, the Navy came in and scraped the entire desert landscape. They just like just scraped the whole thing off 
And in the desert, there's this, the sand and the wind is intense, really, really intense. And so there would always be these massive, I mean, the sand would blow like hard projectiles themselves. I think my mother was, I think when she saw it, the story was that she just, she just cried. She just, just cried that she was living there because there's nothing there. And yet there were people there and there were native people there. Native people were removed from the area in order for them to, to take it over. I found all these documents, early documents, where people are saying, you know, this place is good for nothing but bombing it into oblivion, you know, just bomb it into oblivion and it won't even matter. No one will know. And, you know, it's perfect for us, just perfect. And so that's what they did. They proceeded to do. It sounded like at the time that she was growing up and into her like early adulthood, this whole landscape was shrouded in secrecy. I mean, the place that I grew up in China Lake was not mapped at all. It was very strange to grow up in a place with all these people and all these scientists doing this work, but it wasn't mapped. Nobody knew we existed. And at that time, you could really, you could hide by uh, via space, by being within a very large space. And so one of the early things that she did was collaborate with a cartographer. I didn't want to work on where I grew up at all. I really wanted to leave the desert in China Lake when I was ready to go to college. Um, but I just couldn't get away from it because I knew, I knew how powerful it was out there, how much land they had taken. And the two of them constructed a map of the military geography. I traveled all, all over that place and I traveled all over the Southwest. In, in the strangest places, like in uh, Nevada and in New Mexico, in the desert areas of California. I included waste contamination, waste sites. I included testing sites. I included production sites. I included all of that. I mean, that whole eastern area, these installations, they go on and on and on, and it's all hidden. It's all secret. But they're all out there. And I just knew that they were there because I had been in one. Let me tell you a story then. As a child, my fa- we got to go up to see my father's workplace one time, just once. And it was underground. It was behind a mountain, a number, a number of mountains, and a lot of checkpoints to get there. I mean, I'm just a tiny kid at that time. I don't know how old I was but pretty small. I just remember running through the labs, you know, running crazy through the labs. And then when we were there, um, the big show for all the kids was a miniature nuclear bomb. And um, yeah, so we put on the glasses, get behind this, you know, glass stuff. And that's their, you know, that's supposed to be their great present to us. And that's something that most people are horrified by. But to them, it was their the fruits of their labor. <laughs> she read this really vivid quote from Aldous Huxley, who visited China Lake. Let me just read it to you, because it's really a trip. He said, 12,000 inhabitants, mostly PhDs, entirely air-conditioned, in the middle of the most howling of wildernesses, the whole directed exclusively to the production of bigger and better rockets. 
It was the most frightening exhibition of scientific and highly organized insanity I have ever seen. One vaguely thought that the human race was determined to destroy itself. After visiting the China Lake Research Station, one feels quite certain of it. Wow. My, my mouth is really dry, just a second. I have salivary gland that was taken out because I've had cancer four times, four different times. And this is not terribly unusual <laughs> for people who grow up in these environments. And it hits. It can take up to 30 years, can take 10, 20, 30 years before it actually manifests in a, in a form of cancer. I mean, that's part of the secrecy is so easy to do with this stuff because you can't trace it because there are many things that cause cancer. So there's a whole downwinder story that needs to be told over and over because it's not accepted. It's not recognized. So Valerie talked about doing extensive oral history interviews with especially Native communities, but not exclusively. Uh, there are also some non-Native rural communities people that she talked to, she uh, used the term downwinder communities. So these were people in places that were exposed to the fallout very directly from the production and detonation of nuclear weapons. I've just talked to too many people. Uh, there was one point where I was in, I was in New Mexico and I went to see a woman named Dorothy Purley, who's a Laguna Puebla woman. She was, you know, suffering from thyroid cancer, which is a very common cancer that many people get with um, exposure to radionuclides. And uh, her stories were just heartbreaking about what happened to their community because they were mining uranium. That's you know, There's like a hundred sites that are left open in the southwest area in that area that that a lot of native communities were involved in in helping with the war effort and the effort to get this kind of material that was so rare you know the alien thing is kind of nice and it can be kind of fun and the truth is not is is, is quite tragic and many times it's not so much fun There's a band of Southern Paiute that I went to, and this was just incredible. My husband and I were both in their meeting council hall, and I had a group of people around us, and they were all just giving their stories, giving us their stories of what had happened to them. They are right at the um, border of the Nevada test site proper, and they would they would be told, in the early days, they would be told that these bombs were going to be detonated. And so they would go out, and they would just line the, you know, this was entertainment. They would go out and watch the detonation of these because they were very beautiful. You know, watching this, all these huge clouds and colors and things. And, and you know, they at the end of our, of our talk with them, they were just saying, you know, we have all this thyroid cancer and stuff in our community. So, um, yeah, they did. They watched a lot of that stuff. And, and other people, I think, did too at the beginning when they... They were told about it, but they weren't. They were told that nothing was harmful. Nothing was harmful, and they'll still say that, in many ways. One of the things that I really that I think is really important to mention, she described doing all these interviews with people who were like the victims of uh, military externalities and like environmental catastrophe created by the military, but she met these people 
because they many of them were participating in anti-nuclear demonstrations. They met them in protests outside the Nevada test site, anti-nuclear protests. There would be Native peoples from all over the world and from Los Angeles as well, <laughs> you know? And so it's just, uh, just an amazing network of fourth world network that's quite strong and uh, anti-nuclear. So the way that she got into these communities and the way that she like met many of her research subjects were through like organized and politically active groups. Okay, so what was your general takeaway from Valerie? It's interesting because the message that Valerie delivered was almost apocalyptic. We've had decades and decades of testing, um, and we haven't been told about it. Nobody, generally people don't know about what I would consider a kind of American Holocaust. But her nature and disposition was really pleasant and kind. It was like a pleasure to spend time with her, you know? When they would um, do a nuclear bomb there, whether it was underground or it was above ground, that stuff went all over the United States. Above ground was terrible, but underground, it's close to this earth, and it would pull up all that earth, and that's the stuff that would become fallout. All of that becomes radioactive. It gets up into the atmosphere, and it just travels, and then it falls down at different places. Across the United States, there are hot spots where this stuff fell, and they knew it, and they tracked it, and they didn't tell anybody. They didn't even tell people to protect their children, but they would tell, like, the photographic industry to protect their film. You know, it was really a, just quite an amazing time. I didn't feel like she was preaching doom by having a conversation with her. But the message that she delivered was that nuclearism has been devastating to the landscapes and communities, not only directly in proximity to the places where nuclear weapons and energy is produced, but to the entire world because radiation can't be contained and it like permanently changes environments once it's released. Uh, well, we're driving through some BLM land outside of Baker, and I saw this road, a dirt road, cut off from the highway, the, the little highway that we were on. And I, I wanted to drive on it, but then once I pull in, there's this sign that says, Warning, unauthorized entry to the range complex is prohibited. Entering without authorization could lead to death or injuries, exclamation mark. It's prohibited to remove munitions and unexploded ordnance from the range complex. Removal of items will be prosecuted to the maximum extent provided by law. Entering this installation is not authorized. So this is a bombing range where the military tests uh, explosives. They probably fucking drop the shit out of airplanes. All right, well, back to Baker, I guess. Uh, yeah. the 
doing hi trevor how's it going going good going good can you hear me okay yes yeah. i was wondering if you do you want to tell us the quote that you were yeah it's from freeman it's from freeman dyson he's talking about before they set off the first nuclear bomb and he's describing the silence of the desert and who is freeman dyson i don't know that he was a, like a, a, a physicist who you know worked on you know a lot of the early nuclear things and he describes the silence as follows he says it is a soul-shattering silence. You hold your breath and hear absolutely nothing. No rustling of the leaves in the wind. No rumbling of distant traffic. No chatter of birds or insects or children. You are alone with God in that silence. He goes on to say that he was, they were feeling guilty about turning that space into a radioactive wasteland. <laughs> Who was the last person that we talked to? And why did we talk to him? My name is Trevor Paglin, and I'm an artist. Trevor Paglin makes art about the like hidden geography of the military, secret weapons, places like the invisible spaces of war. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like all this stuff that we had been learning about. He tries to photograph that. How did you start doing work that was in rooted in the desert? I started doing work in the desert in the early 2000s. Before that, I had been doing a lot of work looking at prisons. And of course, in the early 2000s, this war on terror began. This is global, largely secret war, whose defining institution, one could argue, was a prison at Guantanamo Bay. And at the same time, the CIA had a network of other secret prisons around the world that they called black sites. And I was interested in this phenomenon. I was trying to understand how it was possible to make a place disappear, for lack of a better word. How do you do that legally? How do you do that, you know, fiscally? How do you do that spatially? And when you start looking into that, you quickly stumble across military black sites, and the most famous of which is, is, of course, Area 51 in Nevada. In short, a place where the Air Force, CIA, and other agencies develop classified technology demonstrators. There's another one called the Tonopah Test Range, which is north of Area 51. We go back and look at nuclear histories. There's, of course, the Nevada test site is right there. There's even more obscure places. There's a place called Base Camp. There's the electronic warfare facilities. One of the things that I wanted to do was to be able to photograph some of these places. And you have this problem, which is you can't get anywhere near them, right? And so I started thinking about the fact that when you're working at those kind of extreme distances, the images that you're making are at once landscapes, but at the same time, they're also images of vision itself breaking down, right? It's very often a photograph of the impossibility of a resolved photograph. And it, to me, those, those kinds of tensions are 
really one of the defining features of photography itself, but you can push that idea um, in, in, a, in a way as to make that gap between seeing and understanding or that gap between an image and the meaning of that image um, you know, very clear. I think Liza probably already described to you what our like hypothesis is and mm-hmm. what is your hypothesis? Yeah, I what is our hypothesis? I'll state it. I will state I'll state it. So like, you know, what what's the deal with alien jerky? It's like there's this alien culture in the desert, and the desert is this place that is like rife with uh alien and UFO experiences and sightings, and it's also a place for example baker specifically is like literally surrounded in every direction by military infrastructure mm-hmm. and we we hear this story about uh, richard doty and just generally the uh, military's campaign of disinformation promoting the idea that aliens are probably real mm-hmm. and so the relationship between the desert and the military breeds this sort of strange and like very uh specific culture um but i just wonder like hearing that if you had like anything jumps to mind for you yeah i think there's more to it like in the i think that the experience of perception being so different to me feels like is a part of that as well it's fun. I can tell a little bit of a story. I was out in the desert once with a friend of mine, a guy named Peter Merlin, who's an aerospace archaeologist. So what he does is he tries to find airplanes that have crashed and try to find the debris and remnants of those crashes. And we were out looking for a crashed uh, drone you know, from the 1960s, a, a classified drone called a D-21. I had asked him... I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. I don't I don't know that I would notice even um the 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 debris that you're looking for and he said don't don't worry about it at all. He said you'll you'll have your desert eyes on, you'll have your desert vision on and anything that seems out of place will jump out at you. And um sure enough that's exactly what happened. You're walking through the desert, you see some old beer cans for example from the 1950s or 1960s, they jump right out at you. You're hyper aware of the sound of your footsteps. You're hyper aware of the smell of sage. You're aware of any disruptions that you see in that landscape, whether that is footprints or debris or refuse. You might hear a sonic boom or the roar of a military jet. The point is that you're in an environment where the information around you is very subtle. And as a consequence of the subtlety of that information around you, you become hyper aware of the variations and the details that you're seeing. It creates a very strong backdrop for imagination. 
I hesitate to use the word natural, but I think that we are predisposed to trying to resolve um, ambiguities that we perceive to tell a story about our surroundings that makes sense. So when we're confronted with something like the existence of a secret airbase, we don't know what to do with that, right? And I think that the figure of the alien or the figure of the UFO is the place that we often put that which is unresolved. A kind of index for the fact that there are things in the world and in the universe that we don't know what they are. I totally believe, yeah, I totally believe. Yeah. As everyone Yeah. But I don't think they're up there. I think we should be looking in the ocean. Really? Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, I think we're I think we're looking in the wrong place though. Interesting. Yeah. I think they're like deep down. Totally. Like squids Why for do you one. That? Squids for instance, like just looking at those and then just the way they are. Yeah. Those are totally like an alien in itself. so fucked up and I like fled uh, Las Vegas. Oh, there's a huge uh, freight train winding through the valley. It's beautiful. And we're getting hit by some winds. But yeah, I mean, look at that shit. All the way out there. All the way to Arizona, probably. That was Stephen Cassidy Jones and Liza Yeager. Stephen is a PhD candidate in geography at the City University of New York, and Liza makes this podcast and lots of other radio projects. The Dig Presents is also produced and edited by Mitchell Johnson. Our artwork is by Celia Nogales. This episode was fact-checked by Alan Dean. Thanks also to the rest of the Dig team, Alex Lewis, Jackson Roach, Tamuz Frankel, Sylvia Atwood, Theorio Frankos, and Ben Maybe and to our partners at Jacobin. We hope you like this episode of The Dig Presents. Remember, there's a special Dig Presents feed that just includes these documentary stories. One big goal with The Dig Presents is to bring Dig-style political analysis to a broader and different audience than regular Dig interviews. Please do share it with people you know who might like it, and on social media. 